I got a buffer. You know, if I find that this is happening every morning... United States, Germany, the United Kingdom, and many other countries all over the world. What's new about it? Does it really use microwaves, like in microwave ovens? Is that something you should worry about? I began looking into this fully convinced, I tell you that this is the usual nonsense about cell phones causing cancer. But having looked at it in some more detail, now I'm not so sure. What happens all you need to know to understand the 5G controversy. First of all, what is 5G? 5G is the fifth generation of wireless networks. The installation of antennas is not yet completed and it will probably take at least several more years to complete. But in some places, 5G is already operating and you can now buy cell phones that use it. Oh, What's yeah. it good for? 12. 5G promises to deliver phone, more data faster by up to a factor 100, optimistically. It could catapult in us one. into an era where driverless cars and the I Internet of Things have on. become reality. How's that supposed to work? 5G uses a variety of improvements on the data routing that makes it more efficient. But the biggest change that has attracted the most attention is that 5G uses a frequency range that the previous generations of wireless networks did not use. These are the millimeter waves. And yes, these are the same waves that are being used in the scanners at airport security. The difference is that in the scanners, you're exposed for a second every couple of months or so, while with 5G, you'd be sitting in it at low power, but possibly for hours a day, depending on how close you live and work to one of the new antennas. As the name says, millimeter waves have wavelength in the millimeter range, and the ones used for 5G correspond to frequencies of 24 to 48 gigahertz. If that number doesn't tell you anything, don't worry, I will give you more context in a moment. For now, let me just say that the new frequencies are about a factor 10 higher than the highest frequencies that were previously used for wireless networks. Another thing that's new about 5G are directional phased array antennas. Complicated word that basically means the antennas don't just radiate the signal off into all directions, but they can target a particular direction. And that's an important difference if you want to know how the signal strength drops with distance to the antenna. Roughly speaking, it becomes more difficult to know what's going on. Because of these new features, conspiracy theories have flourished around 5G and there have been about 100 incidents mostly in the Netherlands, Belgium, Ireland and the UK where people have burned down or otherwise damaged 5G telephone towers. Dozens of cities, counties and nations have stopped the installations. There have been protests against the rollout of the 5G technology all over the world and groups of concerned scientists have written open letters twice, once in 2017 and once in 2019. Each letter attracted about a few hundred signatures from scientists. Not a terrible lot, but not nothing either. Before we can move on, I need to give you some minimal background on physics, so bear with me for a moment. 
Wireless technology uses electromagnetic radiation to encode and send information. Electromagnetic radiation is electric and magnetic fields oscillating around each other, creating a freely propagating wave that can travel from one place to another. Electromagnetic radiation is everywhere. Light is electromagnetic radiation, radio stations air music with electromagnetic radiation. If you open an oven and feel the heat, that's also electromagnetic radiation. These seem to be different phenomena, but physically they're all the same thing. The only difference is the wavelength of the oscillation. Commonly, we use different names for electromagnetic radiation depending on that wavelength. If we can see it, we call it light. Visible light with long wavelength is red, and an even longer wavelength, when we can no longer see it, we call it infrared. We can't see infrared light, but we often still feel that it's warm. At even longer wavelength, we call the radiation microwaves, and if the wavelengths are even longer, they are called radio waves. On the other side of visible light at wavelength shorter than violet, we have the ultraviolet and then the X-rays and gamma rays. The new millimeter waves are in the high frequency part of microwaves. Now, we may call electromagnetic radiation a wave, but those waves are actually quantized, which means they are made of small packs of energy. These small packs of energy are the particles of light, which are called photons. You may think it's an unnecessary complication to talk about quantization here, but knowing that electromagnetic radiation is made of these particles, the photons, is extremely helpful to understand what the radiation can do. That's because the energy of the photons is proportional to the frequency of the radiation, or equivalently, the energy is inversely proportional to the wavelength. So a high frequency means a short wavelength and a large energy per photon. A small frequency means a long wavelength, which means small energy. Again, that's energy per photon. That the frequency of electromagnetic radiation tells you the energy of the particles in the radiation is so useful because if you want to damage a molecule, you need a certain minimum amount of energy. You need this energy to break the bonds between the atoms that make up the molecule. And so the most essential thing you need to know to gauge how harmful electromagnetic radiation is, is whether the energy per photon in the radiation is large enough to break molecular bonds like the bonds that hold together the DNA. Breaking molecular bonds is not the only way electromagnetic radiation can be harmful, and I will get to the other ways in a few minutes, but it is the most direct and important harm electromagnetic radiation can do. So how much energy do you need to damage a molecule? Damage begins happening just above the high energy end of visible light with the ultraviolet radiation. That's the light that gives you a sunburn and that you've been told to avoid. It has wavelengths that are just a little bit shorter than visible light or frequencies and energies that are just a little bit higher. In terms of energy, ultraviolet radiation has about 3 to 30 electron volts per photon. 
an electron volt is just a unit of energy. If that's unfamiliar to you, doesn't matter. You merely need to know that the binding energy of most molecules also lies in the range of a few electron volts. If you want to break a molecule, you need energies above that binding energy. So you need frequencies at or above the ultraviolet. That's because the energy for the damage has to come with the individual photons in the radiation. If the individual photons do not have enough energy to actually damage the molecule, they either just go through or sometimes if they hit a resonance frequency, they'll wiggle the molecule. If you wiggle molecules, that means you warm them up. So what matters for the question whether you can damage a molecule is the energy per photon in the radiation, which means the frequency of the radiation not the total energy of all the particles in the radiation, of which there could be many. If you take more particles, but each of them has an energy below what's necessary for damaging a molecule, you just get more wiggling. Or the radiation used for wireless networks, including 5G, uses frequencies way below those necessary to break molecular bonds. It's below even the infrared. So in this regard, there's clearly nothing to worry about. But, as I mentioned, breaking molecular bonds is not the only way that electromagnetic radiation can harm living tissue. Because tissue is complicated. It's not just physics. You can also harm tissue just by warming it. And how much warming you can get from electromagnetic radiation is not determined by the energy per photon. It is determined by the total energy per time that is transferred by all the photons and on the fraction that is absorbed by the tissue. A total energy transfer per time is called the power and it's commonly measured in watts. So the frequency tells you the energy per photon, the power tells you the total energy in photons per time. For example, if you look at your microwave oven, that probably operates at about 2 gigahertz, which is a really small energy per photon, about a million times below the energy required to break molecular bonds. But a microwave oven operates at maybe 400 or up to 1000 watts, and that's high in terms of power, so a lot of photons per time. On the other hand, if you have a wireless router at home, it quite possibly operates at a similar frequency as your microwave oven. But a wireless router typically uses something like 100 milliwatts, that's 10,000 times less than the microwave oven, and the router radiates into space, not into a closed cavity. That's a relevant difference for a simple geometric reason. If the photons in the electromagnetic radiation distribute in all of the directions, as they do for antennas like your wireless router, then the density of particles will thin out, meaning the power will drop very quickly with distance to the sender. This is why in wireless communication the highest power you'll be exposed to is if you're close to the sender, and that is usually your cell phone, not an antenna, because the antennas tend to be on a roof or a mast, or in any case not on your ear. Okay, to summarize. The frequency tells you the energy per particle and determines what type of damage is possible. 
the power tells you the number of particles and it drops very quickly with distance to the source. The power alone does not tell you how much is absorbed by the human body. Back to 5G. What the 5G controversy is about is whether the electromagnetic radiation from the new antennas poses a health risk. 5G actually uses electromagnetic radiation in three different parts of the spectrum called the low band, the mid band and the high band. The frequency of the radiation in all these bands is below that which is required to damage molecules. The frequency of the midband is indeed comparable to the one your microwave oven is using, but actually there's nothing new about this. Microwaves have been used for wireless networks for more than two decades. The radiation in the high band are the new millimeter waves. This band has so far been largely unused for telecommunication purposes simply because it's not very good for long-range transmission. The electromagnetic waves in this range do not travel very far and can get blocked by walls, trees and even humans. Therefore, the idea behind 5G is to use a short-range network made of the so-called small cells for the millimeter waves. These small cells have to be distributed at distances of about 100 meters or so. The small cells communicate with macro cells that use the mid and low bands with antennas that operate at higher power and that do the long range transmission. So a fully functional 5G network is likely to increase the exposure to millimeter waves, which have not before been used for cell phones. This means the people who are citing the lack of correlation between cell phone use and cancer incidents in the past 20 years missed the point. These studies don't tell you anything about the 5G high band because that wasn't previously in use. Now, the thing is, if you look at what is known about the health risks from long-term exposure to the new millimeter wave band, there are basically no studies. We know that millimeter waves cannot penetrate deeply into the human body, but we know that at high power, they warm the skin and irritate eyes. Exactly what power is too much in the long run, no one knows because there just hasn't been enough research. Here is, for example, a meta review published about a year ago, which came to the conclusion the available studies do not provide adequate and sufficient information for a meaningful safety assessment. And here we have Rob Waterhouse, vice president of a telecommunication company in the United States. Waterhouse admits that although millimeter waves have been used for many different applications, including astronomy and military applications, the effect of their use in telecommunications is not well understood. The majority of the scientific community does not think there's an issue. However, it would be unscientific to flat out say there are no reasons to worry. That's not very reassuring. And the World Health Organization writes, no adverse health effect has been causally linked with exposure to wireless technologies. But so far, only a few studies have been carried out at the frequencies to be used by 5G. So the protests that you see against 5G, I am afraid to say, are not entirely unjustified. Don't get me wrong. 
damaging other people's property is certainly not a legitimate response. But I can understand the concern. We have no reason to think 5G is a health risk. Indeed, it is reasonable to think it is not a health risk, given that this radiation is of low energy and scatters in the upper layers of the skin. But there's very little data on what the effects of long-term exposure may be. How should one proceed in such a situation? Depends on how willing you are to tolerate risk. And that's not a question for science. That's a question for politics. What do you think? Let me know in the comments. This video was sponsored by NordVPN, which is a software that you install on your laptop or phone and it keeps you safe as you browse the internet. You can use the NordVPN app to connect to one of their servers and browse the web from there. This mm. keeps your data safe even on a public wireless. Using this app has the added benefit that you can choose your virtual location from any one of their more than 5,000 servers all over the world. So if you ever encounter a video or website that is blocked where you are, you can just connect to a server in a different country and access the website from there. In a special offer for viewers of this channel, you can now get 68% off their two-year plan oh, and four sense. instead of three months free if you uh, use the link nordvpn.org slash Zabine and the coupon code Zabine. That's S-A-B-I-N-E. NordVPN works on pretty much all platforms, Android, Windows, iOS, what have you. Once again, that's nordvpn.org slash Sabine and the coupon code Sabine. Mm -hmm. Thanks for watching. See you next week. Well, that was very helpful. Um, you know, I do think that the World Health Organization is jumping the gun on the 5G aspect. And I, a lot of people are in agreement that 5G uh is the catalyst for making the virus activate so i'm going to keep um her information on that um network stuff and um let's see i found a wonderful I, I have crushes on certain people, um, and I have a crush on George Knapp. He used to be on, um, I think he's back on, um, Coast to Coast, and he's doing, um, an interview with Timothy Good. So if you know anything about Timothy Good, he's from the UK. And they are an odd couple to put together, so I have to see this. That's gonna, this should be pretty good. Timothy Good and George Knapp. Think you know FanDuel? Well, what if we told you that we've got an ace up our sleeve? Introducing FanDuel Casino. Now you can play casino games like blackjack, 
Welcome to Coast to Coast AM's YouTube really channel. I'm George Norrie. Like, share, and subscribe. Also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and coasttocoastam.com. Become a Coast Insider for ad-free access to thousands of shows you'll really enjoy. Welcome back, everyone. This is Coast to Coast AM. I'm George Knapp. Thanks uh, to John Lear for joining us earlier. We're now going to be speaking with Tim Good, um, who's live in London. I think he's in London. And uh, Tim, if you don't know him, uh, well, you should. He's conducted worldwide research on the UFO phenomenon for a lot of years. He's interviewed some key witnesses, dug up a, a lot of uh, previously secret documentation. He's talked to astronauts and military officers and intelligence specialists, pilots, politicians, scientists. I remember when I first got involved in, uh, in uh, looking at the UFO phenomenon about 20 years ago, one of the first books I read was something called Above Top Secret, and it was just a masterful work, a compilation of all the all the key uh, ingredients in the UFO cover-up story. Uh, in addition to his interest in UFOs and his many best-selling books, Tim is a, um, a violinist and played for, I guess, uh, was educated at the Royal Academy of Music, played with the London that. Symphony Orchestra, also freelanced for such artists as Phil Collins, George Harrison, Elton John... Paul McCartney, Rod Stewart, and you too. Tim, you there? Hi, I'm indeed, George. Good morning. That's hey, awesome. good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, before we start talking about UFOs, maybe you should tell us, have you got any dirt on all those musicians? McCartney, Rod Stewart, you too? <laughs> no, I don't. No, you want to share. Okay. Uh, right. I had a chance to, you know, Tim and I have known each other a long time, but I had a chance to see him in Denver at this year's MUFON Symposium where he uh, spoke. Uh, we had a chance to chat afterward and... Uh, and I tell you what, uh, Tim, I was just blown away by your talk. Um, and then I got your the, your new book, Need to Know, and wow, I, I'm, is this a fair way to describe it? I, you examine, you re-examine a lot of really well-known cases and topics like Roswell and the D.C. overflights and things of those sort. But you you fill in the blanks. I mean, looking at you look at this stuff in a whole different way uh, with a whole bunch of new information. Is that an accurate description? That's a very good uh, evaluation, George. Thanks. And um, by the way, um, you know, I, I was checking back on my interviews, and uh, the last interview that I did with you was on 30th of March of 1990 on KLAS TV, Las Vegas. Do you remember yes. that? I do. I do indeed. <laughs> I, I still have the tape. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, that goes back a ways. Yeah. You're, you're dating me. Um, <laughs> So it, it, let's start this way in discussing your book and your Everybody's new findings. Um, let's say there's a cover-up, I mean, that we've been lied to. I mean, I believe it, you believe it, most of our audience believes it. Now what, though? I mean, how does it make a difference in our everyday lives once you reach that conclusion? And what do you do with it? It's a very good question, George, and I've pondered about that over many years. One thing I have sort of come to the conclusion is that how many of us who are in favor of full disclosure seriously consider that uh, those elements of the government, and they are few and far between, relatively speaking, in the United States government and elsewhere who, who are in the know, do you seriously think we are going to get the whole picture if they do come out with what people assume might be the truth? I seriously doubt it. It's going to be spin. 
So I don't think that is really going to do that much good, quite frankly. Well, as if it would ever happen anyway. <laughs> well, quite. But you know, there will be, I'm quite sure, I mean, there's no way they can sit on all this stuff forever. Mm. So they've got to say something. Maybe periodically, maybe suggested it'll yeah. come out through through uh, the SETI program. Hey guys, you know, we've really discovered there are there are Earth-like planets, and yeah, you know, we seem to have detected some communications between that's them. What I and, just said. <laughs> you know, there may well have been visits here already, and that sort of thing. Sort of kind of casual. Dribble it out a piece of it at a time, uh, which is yeah. a lot of people believe that's the way it's going now. Yeah. Well, that's what I have been told by by my sources that uh, gradual disclosure is is the wisest agenda. And I might not have gone gone with that, you know, twenty years ago, but now I think probably that probably that is the best way for the sake of, of all sorts of uh, situations. You know, the economy. Um, you can imagine the stock market. Uh, just general sort of um, pandemonium, you know. Hi, what are the, you know? Hey, what are these? What are these guys doing here? You know, are they hostile and so on and so forth? Um, so, it, it, I think it has. And the, the church, of course, is another thing. You know, the religious aspects of this subject um, must never be overlooked. I mean, uh, the church is going to be profoundly affected by by all this. Just you know what happens when? Uh, you know what happens? I'm sorry to. To interrupt you. Um, Go ahead. Um, what happens when people like yourself or me express uh, some reservations about anything short of total and absolute and immediate disclosure? Uh -huh. People jump up and down and pound their chest and point at you. And, you know, I would imagine there are people listening to this program now as saying, we deserve the truth, we need to know the truth, and, yeah. and nothing short of full and immediate disclosure is going to do. But, you know, as you and I have chatted privately, when you've been into stuff for a long time, you start thinking about it, and, and there would be repercussions, there would be consequences, and, uh, and, and but, you know, that, that's a tough one to, for people to swallow, some people who, who sort of have the, uh, the religious fervor about UFOs, you know? Yeah, I agree, I agree. Tim, I, I want to go over, you, you sort of rewrite the ufological history. I was particularly uh, stunned by this, uh, this document, this telegram that you dug up regarding uh, Benito Mussolini. Tell me about that. All right, well, back in 1933, there was apparently the landing of an unknown craft on Italian soil. And uh, this led to the establishment of probably the world's first top-secret UFO research outfit, and it was called Special Research Group Number 33, or RS-33. And um, it happened in June of 1933 when, when this um, unknown craft landed on, on Italian soil. Mm. And this agency was set up. Um, Mussolini himself had a great interest in these events, being a pilot himself, um, especially when later on uh, there were many sightings um, in Italy of these unknown flying objects, um, including um, one in 1936 when pilots were chasing these things and um, got fairly near, but of course they always dashed off uh, as, as they do. But um, Marconi was, was one of the... Uh, committee on this top secret panel interestingly the great engineer um, although curiously he didn't take that great an interest in the phenomenon and he often uh, 
you know, wasn't present at, at all the meetings. But um, definitely, I, I find that very, very interesting that there was a top secret research group in Italy as early as 1933. In, in your book, there's a copy of this, uh, this telegram, highly yes. confidential Italian government telegram yep. um, on the personal order of Il Duce. Yeah. And what does it say? Absolutely no mention is to be made of the alleged landing of an unknown aircraft on national soil. Mm. The same applies to today's news due for publication by the Stefani Agency and individual journalists. Maximum penalty for non-compliance will be enforced by the Tribunal for State Security. You know what makes me wonder is whether Mussolini had a chance to talk about this stuff with his uh, his ally Hitler in, in later years. <laughs> I have no idea, but uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all. But um, interestingly, he, he made um, quite a, a prescient uh, comment. He said, you know, that the Americans shouldn't worry too much about uh, um, uh, foreigners landing on their soil. But uh, he, he, he was he, he commented that um, just before this wasn't that long before. I photographed food in New York and Philadelphia and Paris. DocuSign makes it easier for me to do business. When I think of... February of 1942, when um, there were these extraordinary sightings over Los Angeles, witnessed by well over a million people, you know, the five-hour air alarm, which I think you're all familiar with, during which 1,430 rounds of um, anti-aircraft shells were fired at these things in the sky with absolutely no effect whatsoever. Right. And um, I think it's interesting that, that, that Mussolini sort of um, sort of was, was interested in this before before it actually happened. You know, he, he, he thought there might be um, uh, the chance of something like that happening. Tell me this. Uh, I've, got quote, I've got the quote here, actually, George. Sure. Um, yeah. um, this was a speech by Mussolini uh, actually, it was a year. It was a year before before February 1942. He said the United States are far more likely to be invaded, not by soldiers of the Axis, but by the not so well known but warlike inhabitants of the planet Mars, who will come down out of space in their unimaginable flying fortresses. So, I mean, that's almost certainly the first uh, official reference to possible alien spaceships, um, and uh, I. As I say, it was prescient in that a year later, something like that happened. And it did lead, as you, you were mentioning before the break, uh, to a conflict situation which continues to this day with some alien species, I am absolutely convinced. Do you think the first signs of the conflict um, uh, were in World War II with what we had known as Foo Fighters, although they never actually fired on American, they didn't fire on our planes, did they? Did they interfere with well, our planes then? What I can say is, is that certainly there were, when we talk about Foo Fighters, people think in terms of sort of amorphous blobs of light that followed uh, aircraft, uh, particularly during bombing missions, and sometimes stalled the engines. They certainly did that with, with uh, B-17 bombers and things like that. Happened many on, on, on a number of occasions. But um, the, I, I, again, just before the end of the Second World War, there's an interesting story. Someone I, I spoke to, and it, it, it's come out for the first time in my book, um, a free French Air Force pilot actually um, in, was sent up. Um, the, uh, this was at, uh, at, Self, at Selfridge Field, Mount Clements, near um, Detroit, in July of 1945. And um, there were 
massive sightings of what the what the, the military thought were the Fugo balloons, some of which actually were, were you know, the, these were balloons launched uh, from Japan and they traveled right across the Pacific and a few of them exploded and uh, most of them sort of crashed on, um, on the West Coast. I think no more than about three people were killed in total and on one occasion. Um, but a few of them actually did go as far, I'm told, as far as, as Michigan. And uh, there was this extraordinary situation um, over Selfridge Field um, in the summer of 1945 when um, everybody saw these things, the public as well, outside this U.S. Uh, Army Air Forces base. And the commander of the base asked for a volunteer to go and shoot down the Japanese balloons, as they were assumed. So... Believe it or not, a free French Air Force pilot who was on detachment at the base as a, a P-47 Thunderbolt uh, trainer, um, instructor rather, was um, sent. He, he, he went up and uh, he, 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 he told me that he got us absolutely beyond the service ceiling of the plane and he eventually got one of these balloons in his sights. And it looked like a sphere, but then he let rip with uh, the eight machine guns um, in the wings of the Thunderbolt, and the thing suddenly flipped on edge, so that it looked like a disc on on on, uh, on edge, and then shot off at phenomenal speed. And, and at that point, as he said to me, this was no balloon. <laughs> so uh, this, interestingly, you know, I I, I know that the, the the French aren't the most popular with the United States government for not having uh, participated in in the Iraq. Uh, business, but um, a Frenchman was the first, apparently, to attack a flying saucer over territory of the United States of America, so I, I find that very ironical. Do you think that there is a possibility that, that in that Los Angeles, that famous Los Angeles case, 1942, the whole country has war jitters, we're worried about the, you know, the Japanese invading or flying over sure. and bombing us, and, and so the something was flying over Los Angeles, I think it was February 1942, and, and uh, all hell broke loose, and we're firing off all these uh, guns, shooting at things in the sky. Yes. Do you think it's possible that we shot something down then? Well, something came down, that's for sure. Um, and it was it was subsequently covered up from the next edition of one of the Los Angeles papers. Whether it was an American plane knocked down by friendly fire or what, we, we don't know. I, I would not be surprised if something was shot down. But what I do know is that from uh, from from that time onward, the the American Army Air Forces renewed their resolve to try and get some of these more of these things down. And they succeeded in 1947. What happened was that when when uh, the V-2 rockets, which were being uh, launched from White Sands Proving Grounds, New Mexico, um, with Werner von Braun and his team of captured uh, German scientists, of course, and they brought the rockets over. The Russians got some as well, but the Americans got the best team of scientists. And, of course, they, they, they were developing the V-2s for the American space program. And in May of 1947, when I, one of the very first uh, V-2s was sent up, a, a strange disc was seen sort of zooming around uh, one of the, this, this V-2. And this has been confirmed by the actual um, director, the commanding officer of White Sands at that time, that strange phenomena were responsible for bringing down uh, in, ahead of its, its normal um, 
the area where it was supposed to actually uh, come down, a V-2 rocket, and this was on mm. 15th of May. Peculiar phenomena were blamed for the, you know, the unexplained premature flight of the V-2. And this led to a renewed resolve to try and uh, bring some more of these things down, and they did succeed. And uh, it started May, June, continuing on into July, and further on. What happened is we started firing at these things, and I believe several were brought down, leading to the so-called Roswell incident. There might well have been additional things. There was more than one craft involved, and they were seen over a period of days, and I've reproduced newspaper articles from the period, thanks to a great guy, John Andy Kistner, a former state representative for Las Cruces, who was in the aerospace business, who's given me a great deal of, of help with this aspect uh, of my book, and I wouldn't have uh, been able to do it were it not for his uh, fantastic research over, over many years. And uh, he's dug up tons of stuff, and what happened when the United States Army Air Forces, as they were known uh, prior to September of 1947, began firing at these things. We brought some of these, these craft down. And the ones that, that were, were known, involved in the so-called Roswell incident took several days, actually, to come down. They, they were actually seen wobbling around the sky for, for some period. And there were many reports by people. And um, this led to an unprecedented wave of attacks. Um, on our aircraft, and I'm not just talking about United States, worldwide there was a wave of aircraft disasters involving military planes, not just those that had been sent up to intercept, but, but just ordinary aircraft as well, including airliners, many of which could not get off the ground. They could not unstick, as they say in the, in the aviation trade. Um, and the, 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 the official explanations were that these, these aircraft were running, simply running out of fuel. Well, you know, you don't get that many planes running out of fuel after they've just uh, taken off. And this was world, worldwide, hundreds. And I've cited probably about, a, I don't know how many, maybe, maybe uh, 50, 60, something like that. But there were, there were hundreds all over the world. And Truman ordered an, an inquiry. The government was panicking about this situation, and I'm convinced that's because uh, it was retaliation by some of the UFOs for the fact that we'd shot down some of their discs. Yeah, it's a very disturbing uh, account when you when you look at all of these uh, newspaper clippings, one right after another. Yeah. At this time period, round the world series of plane wrecks kills 180 in the Las Cruces Sun, New Mexico, and then yep. a follow-up in the New York Times. Tim, uh, you essentially believe there was a, a shooting war, and you look at these headlines about all these uh, these crashes, and it's, it's before, during, and after the Roswell thing. So essentially... You're saying Roswell was one incident of many. People across America trust Nutrisystem because we deliver your favorite foods made healthier right to your door. It's convenient home delivery of delicious meals and snacks. Nutrisystem is always there for me. Thank you to Nutrisystem. Well, I don't know how many uh, recoveries there were, George, but um, I certainly think there were some during the First World War, which I've mentioned. Uh, before, I think I've mentioned in previous books, uh, but, um, I've added a, a few more. Um, there was certainly one in, 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 uh, that came down in New Mexico um, in August, in the late summer of, of 1945, uh, which, which I've discussed uh, briefly. came down in a little town of San Antonito, near San Antonio, uh, New Mexico. 
and um, this was taken away by the army. And there have been other incidents, one in Ohio, Ohio in 1944. Whether these were shot down or not, I do not know, but Roswell was not the first. But um, you're, you're talking about the evidence, how can we prove this? Well, I think the proof is contained in many of the newspaper articles of that period, the contemporary news articles from local papers to the New York Times. I mean, this was worldwide. There was a situation that pilots were reporting discs in the sky. Um, there were accidents happening all the time around that period, Com many of them completely unexplained. And incidentally, um, later on, we, we might come to this, but um, the, the defense, US, the official U.S. Defense Department accident statistics, which um, which I've got thanks to Richard Hall, who um, the, Richard H. Hall, the, the great uh, in, investigator, um, who was given them by Dr. Alevo Fontes. There were something like, uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly, but from 1952 to October of 1956, there were about 1,700 unexplained accidents involving interceptor aircraft the of the type that would be used to intercept chase uh, UFOs just from that period. So if we were to look at the records, the way to prove it would be to look at the military records of, of these many, many accidents. And I think it would be very, very interesting indeed uh, if, we can, if we can get all those. Let's focus on Roswell for a couple of minutes. You write in your book, and from the outset, Roswell has also been the subject of an intensive counterintelligence campaign using every conceivable trick or tradecraft by fair means or foul, such as threatening and discrediting witnesses and fabricating counter evidence. Um, that's, that's pretty tough to, to cut through it, because these guys who do this stuff are good at it, aren't they? Well, of course, it's their profession. You know, counterintelligence, um, for example... Uh, the Air Force uh, Office of Special Investigations, AFOSI, uh, has been involved uh, for, for many, many years. Um, and there are thousands of people involved in counterintelligence uh, deception programs um, to put out uh, false information to, and discrediting witnesses and so on. It still, it still goes on and it's, it can be very, very effective indeed. Also, you have... Um, uh, the media can be influenced by people in counterintelligence. It's called perception management. Uh, we call it news management over here. Um, it's rather sort of <laughs> devious method of doing things, but it is done if uh, spin you could, is another word, just altering a few facts, discrediting witnesses. Um, it's, it's, it's quite easy and it's very, very effective. You know, it's amazing to me. You've dug up all these newspaper articles that uh, that have just never been mentioned in this context before that sure seemed to paint a pattern right before Roswell that things were going on in the sky that could have been related to this crash. I mean, uh, you know, one of the things you mentioned in the book is this discrepancy about when Mac Brazel actually reported finding the wreckage that we know today as the Roswell incident. Now, what's the significance of that? Well... I don't know exactly, George. Quite frankly, without without going through all the all the you know the facts and figures and everything, but what what I do know is that in around the 26th, 27th, 28th of June in New Mexico, a number of these discs were seen wobbling around the skies. Uh, 
they were they were described as sailing or falling objects and uh, for example there's the El Paso Times of 28th of June which I've, I've got in front of me here and it, it talks about um, uh, a conjecture as to whether the falling objects had any relation to the mysterious flying discs which had been variously reported and um, and in fact uh, there, there was a search parties were sent from White Sands in attempts to locate the objects or to secure in additional information and of course they eventually they, they, they eventually got them but uh, maybe the ranch was the first to report one of the sites I think probably that's uh, what, what, what may have happened there were several sites I'm, I'm still in there's still some doubt about the exact uh, um, exact location of the sites. There might have some people say there were two, some people say there were even three. There's still some confusion about that, but um, a lot more information is is coming out now. And of course, we have Walter Howe too, who who uh, um, apparently signed a sort of uh, uh, like what amounts to a deathbed confession that he himself, uh, he was the press officer for the United States Army Air Forces at uh, Roswell Army Airfield at the time. And, um, you know, finally after his death, we learned that he'd actually um, had a glimpse of uh, the alien uh, beings themselves recovered in, in one of these incidents. So, you know, the, the truth is sort of gradually emerging over the years, more and more people are coming forward, and um, I've introduced several more witnesses, people like uh, the, the Polish biophysicist, who together with uh, a small team of, of scientists, of biophysicists from, from uh, Britain, from France and Italy, and this was a Polish guy, were actually shown at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory back in April of 1977, the JPL at Pasadena, they were taken down to a, a, a vault three levels below ground and shown in this top secret area um, remains of some of the alien beings found in New Mexico. No specifics were given, but uh, this biophysicist describes in great detail um, his opinion that this was not the, the skeletal structure that he examined was neither that of a chimpanzee nor a small child but uh, there was also part a large part of the skull that uh, were exhibited in this uh, top secret room and um, I, I find that testimony very very compelling indeed I remember your your presentation in in Denver that you you mentioned this and I found it fascinating I think you used a pseudonym for this Polish scientist do you know his real name Dr. Chris no, I don't, but I know who does. Um, and is he still one day, alive? One day I'll get to meet him, I'm sure. You think he's, he's still alive then? Oh, yes. Um, another, you know, something that sort of separates you from a lot of the UFO researchers is your access to really high-level military folks, uh, both in Britain there and in the United States. And one of those who helped sort of put, um, put uh, things in perspective about Roswell for you is someone I've also spoken to uh, over the years. His name is uh, Brigadier General Arthur Exxon. Tell me uh, what he was able to, what light he was able to shed on the I Roswell met, mystery. I, I have to say, uh, George, I never met uh, General Exxon. So you, the the uh, I cite information. His testimony. It was it was it was Kevin uh, Schmidt and Randall who, who who were the first to, to to come out with a lot of his information, I believe, and they published that in uh, one of their first books on Roswell. How, how does it relate to what you've written in this book about Roswell? I think some of it uh, relates. Very much so. Um, I find it. I find his testimony very compelling. But often these guys um, might sort of provide. Uh, they might 
in, in provide diversionary information, shall we say, just to, to protect themselves or to protect some other people or anything. So it, it's, you know, when military people come up with information, there's, it often is accompanied with disinformation, particularly when you come to exact areas where things were recovered and things like that. I mean, they don't want people going out to these places and sort of um, combing them because there's, there's, there's more, definitely more than one crash site involved in the Roswell thing. And um, there's, there's quite a bit of new testimony that's uh, been provided. But as I say, that was, that was just one. Uh, Werner von Braun uh, apparently was also um, shown some of the recovered bodies, according to uh, Clark McClelland, who, who was a NASA aerospace engineer and he kindly provided me with some information can this beanie hat protect my head from harmful 4g and 5g cell phone radiation my emf meter is going crazy but if i take the cell phone and place it inside the beanie hat and then take my emf meter place it above beanie hat only one bar as you can see in the test this beanie is proven to protect your head from four and, uh, he chatted to dr von brown about roswell and he allegedly said i'm quoting uh clark here he, says that, uh, he and certain of his associates have been taken to the crash site after most of the military were pulled back uh he told me the craft did not appear to be made of metal as we know metal on earth it almost seemed to be created from something biological and um, the bodies, he said, were temporarily being kept in a nearby medical tent, small, very frail, and had large heads and large eyes. And uh, he, he said that his inspection of the debris had even him puzzled, very thin, aluminum-colored, like silvery chewing gum wrappers, very light and extremely strong. Well, we've heard that before from, from other people, of course. And he says that, uh, that the interior of the craft was nearly bare of equipment, as if the creatures and craft were part of a single unit. So that's that's someone else. And um, also there's, there's a number of other witnesses um, who are cited, like Sergeant Robbins, which um, I've gone into in, in some detail. I don't know how many. We, we don't need to go into the whole story here. But T um, Tell me this, Tim. Uh, you mentioned yeah. that, you know, the shooting war had been going on before Roswell, during and, and yeah. after. Yeah. You mentioned a couple of minutes ago these, these figures compiled by Richard Hall about uh, unusual... Compiled uh, by the United States Defense Department. Yes, there were... There were I, I can get hold of these statistics um, in a minute. Um, um, but, I mean, the question I, I is how... Them, I have them here, yeah. Sure. How long did this shooting war go on? And these these numbers think, indicated that you mentioned earlier think, that it from fifty two to fifty six. So it, I think this it shoot. I think it continues to this day. I think well, there is a conflict with some of these beings. Of that, I'm absolutely certain. Uh, and uh, I mean, do you have recent evidence, uh, recent suggestions, or testimony that the, that we're still shooting at you, at each other? Oh gosh, yes. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of reports. People, you know letting loose with, with uh, like sidewinder missiles at these things um, it continues but I, th I would say generally um, for example in 1998 uh, I think it was in in, um, in China Ch Chinese uh, Air Force plane was sent up to intercept a UFO and he got the thing in his sights and he requested permission to fire at it but uh, ground control forbade him to fire at it so I think probably there's a lot of common sense uh, involved in situations, especially when one realizes that there have been these awful accidents. 
Um, tell the audience who Lord Hill Nor Norton is and uh, and um, yes, well, and um, what he's told you. He, uh, well, he was an admiral of the fleet. He was former chief of the defense staff of the United States government, and he was also chairman of the NATO military committee. He died a few years ago, but uh, he was enormously interested in the subject. He helped me a great deal over the years. He himself had not, and I, I do believe him on this, um, had not been exposed to any great secrets about the subject at all. He, he did all he could after after he retired to find out, but um, and he did discover some things. But um, it's interesting that someone in a very high position like like that, as, you know, former chief of defence staff, had not had no exposure, as they say, um, in the military to 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 the subject officially at any rate. Ever any discussion with him or other uh, British military officials about the possibility of, uh, and I don't know the answer to this, I'm just asking off the cuff, but whether or not there is a British Roswell, did you ever, did, this is this question was sent in by one of the listeners uh, the program a few days ago, but is there any indication that the British military forces tried to shoot him down and, and may have succeeded? Um, I, I, I wouldn't doubt it. I have no firm information myself about that. There are various rumors of, of, of incidents, but I have no solid information, you know, to sort of base any opinion on at the moment about that. But what I do know is I'm quite sure there has been a conflict situation um, and uh, it, it has been covered up. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that many British military aircraft have, have disappeared, pilots never found, aircraft never found, that sort of thing, as just as they have um, in, in the United States and, and other countries. Now, I've got these statistics in front of me from the book. Um, there were, from 1952 until the end of October 56, 18,662 major accidents of military aircraft, most of those involving high-performance uh, interceptors of the type that would be used to chase uh, the flying disks. Now, that's an extraordinary number of major accidents. And um, of that total, 56 were found to be caused by pilot error, 8% by ground crew or other personnel failure, 23% failure of parts and equipment, and the actual figure of unexplained um, accidents is 9.5, which amounts to 1,773 accidents due to unknown factors. Now, wouldn't it be interesting to research all those cases involving unknown factors? Perhaps uh, some, someone should uh, file a Freedom of Info Information request about that. Yeah, consider it done. Let's, we'll, we'll get on that. Um, <laughs> tell me, uh, what about the ghost rockets before we leave this period? After World War II, these, these, this phenomenon is known as ghost rockets in, yep. uh, over Scandinavian countries. A lot of folks thought they were just regular missiles. Um, what, what's your new take on that? that you express in the book? Well, first of all, you, you know, I, my book has a foreword by Bill Gunston, who is one of the world's foremost aviation historians, and he absolutely assures me that the, whatever the ghost rockets were, um, they were not Russian rockets using captured German equipment. That was the prevailing theory of the intelligence people and the military at that time. Often, you know, rockets need guiding vanes, you know, you, you, you need you need some kind of thing to, to direct them. Um, these missiles that were seen frequently had absolutely no 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 uh, fins or veins or anything like that, and they often moved just completely different from from um, 
the way rockets move. They were sometimes, you know, uh, seen sort of diving and climbing, other times proceeding in, in a relatively leisurely sort of, of manner. And there were actually accidents. I mean, this was going on not just in, in Scandinavia, though particularly in Scandinavia, but it was around the world, actually. There were reports from India, Turkey, many other countries, Greece. And um, the incidents of, of, there were a number of aircraft accidents, as a matter of fact, um, quite quite disturbing. And I've, I've, um, I've, I've reproduced um, a headline from the, uh, I believe it's the New York Times here, Ghost Rockets, Plane Hits Rocket, Three Swedes Killed. And um, so you see there were a number of disturbing incidents then, and uh, that some of these, these things were seen diving into lakes as well. We don't know what was going on there at all. And as I say, the consensus at first was, was that these were Russian rockets, but they were not. They were, and, and they obviously weren't ordinary rockets of any, of any kind. One of the incidents that, uh, that really caught my eye in the book is uh, it, on, uh, it's August 1947. This B-25 Mitchell uh, twin-engine bomber crashed near Kelso, Washington, killing the pilots, Captain William Davidson and Lieutenant Frank Brown. They were intelligence officers, yeah. and uh, and I guess apparently they were returning from Tacoma, Washington, where they'd interviewed, of all people, Kenneth Arnold. Kenneth Arnold the, the, and Captain Ed Smith, that's right, who, who'd both been witnesses to UFO sightings uh, earlier that summer. This was this became known as the what I refer to as the, as, as the sinister Maury Island incident of 21st of June, which is a, a, a very strange episode, and um, I, um, I can... I, I, you know, there is a there is a very good book um, by by Ken Thomas. Um, if I uh, a, it's called uh, Maury Island UFO: The Chrisman Consp Conspiracy by Ken Thomas, um, published by Illuminate Press, and um, I find that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, the Chrisman name pops up in some interesting places. When we come back, we'll uh, we'll look a little bit more into this incident as well as the infamous. Uh, Washington, D.C. overflights and some new information there. You know, Tim, we'll get back to some specifics. I guess what I'd be wondering is, uh, you know, given the fact that uh, they're from everything we know about UFOs, wherever they're from, other planets or dimensions or whatever, that they're so far technically advanced, uh, so far beyond what we have, why haven't they just wiped us out? If, they're, if we're shooting at them, they're shooting at us, uh, you'd presume they could do a lot more damage than they've done. Absolutely, I, I, I agree with you, and, and this makes me very skeptical about, about the whole uh, possibility. But uh, at the same time, there have been incidents where we have shot at these craft, and in some cases have brought them down, certainly in the early days. My understanding is that, uh, that even our technology has been developed to the extent that we now have very, very uh, capable weaponry to deal with some uh, craft but i'm quite sure that sh should you know we they, they could wipe us out if they wanted to no question about it well you you know maybe then you get into stories like about area 51 and bob lazar and phil yep. corso and uh -huh. things like that that we've uh, we've been able to recover this technology maybe exactly. we've lessened the gap over the years exactly that's uh, absolutely i'm with you 100 percent on that one george no question i want to go back I want to go back to this incident with these uh, two military pilots. They, they, this is incredible to me. They fly up to interview Kenneth Arnold, the guy who started the modern UFO era. He saw these uh, nine flying discs, I think it was, over yep. our saucer-like objects in, in over Washington State. 
Uh, you know, the, the first saying. big story of the modern UFO era. The military pilots who go up to interview him flying back and they crash and die? Oh yeah, well, there's this mysterious guy called Fred Chrisman who was a uh, uh, mysterious ca character definitely with a background in counterintelligence which included uh, U.S. Air Force oh, and the CIA, including black way. operations for the CIA who had investigated and, in my opinion, contaminated the case. And he is the one, Chrisman, came in, uh, he intervened and 